everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. All right, so my name is Amos, and I'm one of the pastors here. I've been here actually just over a year. I'm going to bring out my friend Steve for later. But uh, I, I plan on being here a very, very, very long time. And I will say, after a year, man, I love this church. I love the people in it. Uh, these are some of the most kind and interesting people ever. And I mean that in all the best ways. And if, I mean a few other ways as well. But. The, the variety of interests, the variety of occupations. Politically, we've got people all over the map, and yet we're able to bring people that are so different together because we worship one God and have one mission, and we love each other. So I think that's, that's good stuff. That's what it's about, coming together to worship God. And uh, with that, I want to start off today by telling you a little story. Some of you know that I spent some of my college education in Israel going to Jerusalem University College, and we would take these essentially field trips almost every week. We called them field studies because that made it seem more adult. But, you know, we'd go here and we'd go there, and one week we went up to the Sea of Galilee, and so we walked around the Sea of Galilee. We went on a boat ride in the Sea of Galilee. Me and some of the guys went skinny dipping in the Sea of Galilee. The girls stole our clothes <laughs> while we were in the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, the last night we were there, we decided we wanted to climb up uh, one of the surrounding mountains called Mount Hippus to watch the sunrise over the Sea of Galilee. And we start off and it's pitch black because it's like four in the morning. And you know how those mountain roads go like switchback after switchback after switchback? We decided we were going to go straight up the mountain. So we climb over a fence, and we start to climb, and we want to make it by sunrise. We reach the top, we watch the sunrise, and then we turn around and start walking back down the mountain, and we see this sign. Danger. Mines. Because this was up by the Syrian border, and at the time they'd been in conflict. We had climbed up. Mount Hippus through a minefield, and we're alive. I'm here alive to tell you the story. So why do I tell you that? It's because relationships are full of landmines. You may not know it, but someday, with someone you're close to, with someone you love, you're going to say something a certain way, or say something with a certain tone, and everything's going to blow up. Relationships can be really, really messy, and part of it is because of the baggage that we bring to these relationships. This past week, uh, you know, we, we're just starting this new series, Messy, but we got together in our life groups, and uh, we went around the circle, and we asked each other, looking back on our summer, what has been messy about your summer? And let me tell you, our church is a hot mess. <laughs> like, there are messy, messy people in this church. 
But we love that. And I'm not going to tell anybody about anybody else's mess because I respect confidentiality, but I can tell you a little bit about my own mess. And I'll say this past summer, I was dealing with anxiety that I'm not used to dealing with. I was having to face sadness, and I'm not somebody who usually deals with sadness. I had made some decisions that I regret, and I'm not somebody who is used to having to deal with decisions that I regret. So like my life, I can testify, has been a mess lately. But in this context of this church, in that group, it was, I was not met with judgment or dirty looks, and neither was anybody else. I was met with love and embrace, and people prayed for me, and they loved me through that hot mess. And I talk about this because we're in this new series called Messy. And as part of this series, we've been reading about a church that was one of the most exciting, gifted, passionate churches to ever exist in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago. But it wasn't just an exciting, passionate, gifted church. In fact, Paul writes them a letter called 1 Corinthians, and he deals with problem after problem after mess after mess that he's trying to clean up. And the first one that he brings up as I think maybe one of the most important, and it boils down to basically this raw, ugly, childish, and I use that word childish on purpose, personal conflict, relational conflict that they're going through. So let's read now from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 to 4. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up and read along with me. Otherwise, the words will be up on the screen. So Paul says to this church, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So just pause there. Just so you know, Paul has given this church the what for. To call them infants is not a compliment. To call them worldly is not a compliment. He's saying, basically, you guys have decided to follow Jesus. You've been given this new life deposited in your hearts. The Spirit, God's very Spirit, lives inside of you. And you're acting like kids. Because, and here it is, here's why in verse 3, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? And again, mere human beings, this, this is a smack backside the head because people aren't playing nice with one, one another. And we're not even really sure what they're fighting about here. Did you notice that? Paul doesn't seem to care who's right and who's wrong. But what we find out at the end is there's this faction over here and they are doing one thing, believing one thing, and they're siding against this other faction over here. There's been division. Paul doesn't care what they're fighting about. What he cares about is that at the end of all this, there are people who are splitting apart. The relationship is being destroyed. The bridges are being burned. 
And he gives us another clue as to exactly what's going on in verse 3 when he says, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. And this letter was originally written not in English but in Greek. And when you look at those two words, we find out that jealousy at its very root means basically emotional volatility. And that word quarreling is, well, a word that goes back at least to the writing of Homer. You know this guy, the Greek poet? who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. And when he uses the word, he's talking about battle. So if you can imagine, these two groups of people have drawn their battle lines. And I expect, because he's talking about division here, it's not that they're engaging with each other. They've actually, like in World War I, dug these trenches so that they're separate and letting things fester on each side. They're pulling apart. And that's going to drive us to what I think is one of the most essential teachings of Jesus, because it has to do with relational conflict. I think it's essential because it's one of the most practical teachings of Jesus, because if you are in relationship with anybody, and I would say especially with a church, it's not a matter of if you're going to enter into conflict, it's a matter of when and how often your feelings are going to get hurt. And it's a matter of when and how often you are going to hurt other people's feelings, whether it be intentional or not. So this is going to be practical in your family life, in your workplace, in your church, in your marriage. And it's a scary one because Jesus is very simple and very clear on this teaching, which means there's not a lot of wiggle room for us to like get out of it, okay? But I want you to understand, when I say essential... I do not mean that this is how you earn your salvation, okay? When I say essential, I am not saying that Jesus' teaching on conflict resolution is a tenet of the gospel. Do you know what I mean by gospel? By gospel, I mean good news. It is not good news to say, do what Jesus said. It is not good news to say, do what Jesus said. The good news is that Jesus died the death that we should have died, and lived the life that we should have lived. And so through that, God reconciles with us. And out of that, he gives us a new identity and a new life and a spirit that lives in us so that our obedience to him becomes the fruit of that new identity, not the root of that new identity. You hear what I'm saying? Obedience does not save you Obedience does not make you right with God. Jesus makes you right with God. But let me put this another way, because maybe you don't even care about obedience with Jesus, to Jesus, and that's fine if that's where you're at. But just imagine once for a minute that God does exist. And if he created the entire universe and everybody and everything in it, he's going to be the one you want to go to to find the blueprints of how human relationships are going to work. So I think when Jesus gives us teaching like this, he's basically saying, hey, this is how I designed human relationships to work. And if you want things to go well, I suggest, you know, take a look at the blueprint. So the reality is that when we are hurt or offended, we have choices. And I'm going to read from Bill Hybels, who's the pastor of Willow Creek in Chicago and the founder of the Global Leadership Summit on what these two choices are. He says here, when high-capacity people work in close proximity to each other, 
there will be friction. To expect otherwise is naive because inevitably something is going to be said or done by someone and someone else's feelings are going to get hurt. What matters is what you do immediately after the infraction occurs. As far as I can tell, there are two theories in existence here. One says to let time heal the wound. Don't pay too much attention to the thing. The other person will forget about it. Your own anger will subside, and eventually all will be water under the bridge. And then there's the Bible's approach, which is different than that. So the Bible's way. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. We'll be talking about the Bible's way today, the way things usually go, and then the heart of conflict resolution. Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Jesus says this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's got a lot of things that he's calling people to. In verse 23, when he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Some of you have probably heard that before. Some of you haven't. That's okay. But there's like a lot there that Jesus is saying. Jesus is dropping bombs on us. You just don't know it. The first thing he's saying is that what I'm saying about conflict resolution is important, it's urgent, and it should be face-to-face. First, let's talk about the importance. Just how important is it that you be reconciled to your brother, to your sister, to the people that you're in relationship, to the people that you're closest to, the people that you go to church with? Well, does he say, is it more important to be in church on a Sunday morning, or is it more important to go reconcile with the person? Jesus says, before you come to worship, you need to make sure that you are at peace with the people that you are in conflict with. That's how important this is. He's saying that it's urgent. He says, if you are at the altar, drop your gift there and go and do it right now. Don't finish your act of sacrifice. Go and do it now. So, you might be thinking that back in Jesus' day, in Jesus' time and place, that altars were here and there and everywhere, kind of like churches on every street corner depending on which street corner you're in, right? So just walk down the street and go. The thing is, the interesting thing is here is that in Israel, in Jesus' day, you know how many altars there was? Just one in Jerusalem. So if you live 40 miles down the road in Galilee, this is like your vacation to Disneyland, okay? You've been planning it. You've paid for it. You've flown there. You've walked there, whatever, You've taken the monorail. The castle is in sight. And he says, get back on the monorail. Get back on your plane. Go to the person that you're in conflict with. And result. This is pretty radical. This is crazy, in fact. And Jesus has some foresight here, I believe, because he says, go to the person. Go to the person face-to-face. And he didn't know about text and email. But... He's behind something, I believe, when he says, do this face-to-face. Do this at least in a way where they can hear the tone in your voice. Because in Jesus' day, there was a relatively sophisticated method of writing and delivering letters, right? Like, 
where we read from 1 Corinthians before is a great example of a letter that was written and sent. Jesus doesn't say, drop what you're doing at the altar, write a letter, send it off to the person you're in conflict with. No, he says, go to them. And let me say from personal experience, I have learned this lesson over and over and over and over again. When I try to do important relational things over email or over text, it blows up. So Jesus has some foresight here. I know the millennials in the room are thinking, but that's how I do most of my communication. (laughs) Please, (laughs) learn from me. Go to the person, at least call them. There's something about the tone in your voice that for me at least, it doesn't matter how much I say at the beginning of an email, I love you, I'm for you, I'm not mad. Everybody thinks I'm mad or, you know, upset. Maybe that's just because I'm a pastor. I don't know. Final thing here on this passage. Who is in the wrong in this? Can we put that Matthew 5 back up? Go back. Who is in the wrong? If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, in this case, you are in the wrong. So, if you are in the wrong, Jesus is saying, make the first move, right? But put your finger there, put your like mental thought there, and let's shoot over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, a couple pages down, verse 15. Here Jesus says, and he's kind of just following up on what he said on Matthew 5 a little bit. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. In this passage, who is in the wrong? Actually, the other person is. If someone else, right, has sinned against you, then who goes? You go to them. So, if you are in the wrong, Jesus says, make the first move. If the other person is in the wrong, Jesus says, make the first move. It doesn't matter who's in the wrong. If you think somebody's in the wrong, go to the person. Go to the person. Now, is this the way that conflict usually works, that when you have a beef against somebody, you go to the person and work it out? Usually not. Our default mode, the default mode of the culture, the default mode, I guess, of our humanity is to not do what Jesus said. It's to do something else. And that's where my friend Steve comes in. You know where Steve came from? Giant. That's true. (laughs) You know what Steve was doing in Giant? He was on a spit. He was getting turned around and around and around, getting cooked, getting crispy, starting to look less and less like a chicken. Imagine what would happen if Steve wasn't just on the spit for a day, but for three days, or a week, or a month. Guys, we do this to people sometimes not just for weeks or months, but for years and years and years. In our minds, we've been hurt, and we let things turn, and we let things fester, And we turn them over and over and over into our mind until the life juice just gets burned right out of them. And in the meantime, our one grievance, they do something else that maybe tweaks us a little bit, turns into two grievances, turns into three. Our list of hurt gets so long that before too much time passes, 
people start to look like charred pieces of meat, like they're inhuman, like suddenly they couldn't have a positive thing to contribute to the world. They're evil, they're villainous, they're the enemy because we've turned them over. I'm not talking about politics, but we could be. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about family members and people in our church and people at our work, bosses and co-workers and wives and husbands and children. Instead of going to the person right away so that this can't happen, we turn them over and over and over into our mind. What happens next depends a little bit on our conflict style. And I think there's basically two types of conflict styles, and I want you to ask yourself, what type of conflict style do I have? The first type of conflict style is the skunk conflict style. Second type of conflict style is the turtle. Are you a skunk or are you a turtle? The skunks, of course, when they're hurt, everybody knows about it. And they, take, they maybe were hurt by Steve, but they go to Ed and let Ed have it. And they go to Frank and let Frank have it. And they create this relational wake of destruction because they've been hurt, right? Turtles withdraw, retreat, quiet down. Turtles, if your conflict style is a turtle, can also be aggressive, but it's a different type of aggressive. It's the type of aggressive that starts with a P. They can be passive-aggressive, right? They get snarky. They get, you know, just little biting comments, little kind of jokes. That they're just twisting the knife. Do I have to go out of my way to say this is not what Jesus intended relationships to be like? Okay. We toast them. We roast them. We withdraw. We spray. And then, usually... Instead of going to the person, we go to anybody else. Now, there's a word that comes up here that I think Jesus is just desperately asking us to avoid, and the word is triangulation. You know why it's called triangulation? Because if you have a beef with person A and B, let's say you're person A, person B is Steve. Jesus says go to the person. But instead, we go to a different person, person C. That's where things get really nasty because when we go to, we could go to person C for a variety of reasons. We're usually looking for person C to, to gang up with us against the person, which actually doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't do you any good and it doesn't do them any good. And I just want to talk about person C a little bit because a lot of us find ourselves in person C's spot, right? People come to us with their grievance against another person. What do we do? Now, I think there is some space. If person A is genuinely looking for wisdom, if person A is genuinely just like, I need someone to process this with, and I'm going to go talk to person B, I just need to, that's okay. That's usually not what happens, okay? What do you do if you're person C at the top of the triangle? I don't think you can let it continue. I think if you're someone who takes Jesus seriously, and even if you're not, you say to person A, you, it sounds like you're bitter and you need to go talk to Steve. If you don't think, if it doesn't go well, maybe 
go to Steve with someone else, like get in some arbitration, but like Steve is important to you. If that doesn't work, like you wanna, you wanna kind of expose what's going on, here, try these words sometimes. I'm not super comfortable in having this conversation without Steve here. You know what's gonna happen? Person A is gonna, well, probably gonna get mad if they're a skunk. But there's gonna be, they're gonna get mad because they're exposed and they're gonna realize that they're doing something that's, that's flat out wrong. And, you know, in their mind, Steve is the problem. But hopefully in that moment, they'll realize, oh, I'm actually the mean, nasty person in this because of what I'm spewing all over the place. Okay? This stands in contrast to what Jesus teaches. And I just want to talk briefly about why I think we go to the roasting and toasting and spraying and triangulating. And it has to do with heart issues, I think. I think it's because we've let one or two things in. Perhaps it's fear. And I have empathy for this. Like, fear is a natural reaction because you might be afraid of what Steve is going to say. You might be afraid that Steve is going to explode, right? You might be afraid that it's not going to go well. You might be afraid that you're going to ruin the relationship if you go to Steve and actually talk about what's going on between you and Steve. But again, let me tell you, Jesus designed relationships and how they work. If you want your relationship with Steve to continue in a genuine way, in a way that you don't have to fake it, Go to Steve. <laughs> the other thing that we can let in is pride. Pride is a big one. Pride has deep tentacles that wrap itself around our hearts. And when pride takes root, it's either I'm too good to talk to Steve or perhaps I don't see that I have any fault in what's going on between me and Steve. Does this happen to anybody? Steve is totally in the wrong. I am totally in the right. This happens in our marriages. This happens in our church. This happens with our friends. And by the way, turtles and skunks, they make really interesting tango partners because <laughs> you have skunks spraying and turtles backing up. And funny thing, if you're married, a lot of times skunks marry turtles. <laughs> but anyway, don't let pride in. Don't let fear in. Instead, try this posture on. Try on the posture of humility and love. And these things match up. Like you can see how humility combats pride. Because what humility says when you go to the person that you're in conflict with, okay, it might be 99.99% Steve's fault. It's probably not. It's probably more like 60-40. But it might be 99.99% Steve's fault. I'm going to look in myself for where I've gone wrong. Even if it's because I've held it in for three weeks. Even if it's because I was impatient, angry, festering. Even if all I was doing was just turning Steve on a spit. I'm in the wrong somehow. To start with an apology, to start with humility, is going to make this conversation go way better. The second one, love, you might not think matches up with fear. But there's an interesting passage in the Bible that says perfect love drives out all fear. What's going on here? I, 
I don't know exactly, but maybe it's because love will overcome our feelings of love for someone will overcome, be stronger than our feelings of fear if we focus on that. So how do you go to Steve in love? I think there's a couple of important things to keep in mind. The first is that you assume the best of Steve. If you have a hard time doing this, it probably means that you've turned Steve on the spit for too long. Assume the best motives of people. Assume that they're trying to do good. That's going to change the tone and the relationship. That's going to change the conversation. Secondly, one of the things you can do to show love is to communicate your commitment to them. In other words, communicate what the stakes are. We do this uh, when my wife and I do marriage counseling with people, like in trying to get the two spouses to talk that maybe aren't talking or maybe only know how to talk when they yell. Like, if you're committed, like, make sure you tell them, I'm not going to leave. If you love the person and that's not going to change, tell the person, I love you, that's not going to change. If you're someone's boss, you know, your job is not on the line. I don't know. Like, make sure that people know that you're committed to them, to the relationship. I'm not asking you to lie, but that's going to set a tone that's positive and good. The second, or the third thing, I guess, is to talk about how their behavior affects you instead of making judgment calls. So, you can go to Steve and say, Steve, you're a jerk, you're selfish, and you are clueless. That's making a lot of judgment statements. Or you can say, hey, Steve, when you make fun of the Patriots, <laughs> when you call them cheaters, that makes me feel like I'm deficient morally. <laughs> that would be an example. But, but, you know, there are other examples. Like, I don't know why that's the first thing that came to mind. I should have planned this out better. Uh, when you uh, don't clean up the kitchen, that affects me in these ways. This makes me feel like when people come over that I can't be a good host because the kitchen's a mess. When you do this, it makes me feel this. Like, own your feelings like, because you're responsible for your feelings and your behaviors, just as they're responsible for their feelings and their behaviors, okay? There's a lot more to talk about this, and if you want to learn more, you can sign up for the core training because we talk about boundaries and conflict resolution, and it's not too late, and you get free lunch, so I don't know. Grab your Connect card. Okay, let's get back to Corinthians. The Corinthian church is getting backhanded because they're doing, I think, right, emotionally volatile battle line drawing, division, roasting, triangulating, all this stuff. And Paul says, you are being childish, like babies. This is how children do relationships, right? Knock it off. And then, just a few verses later, he says this. You messy, messy people, you are God's field. You are God's field, and we could just stop right there at you are God's. You're acting like children, but you belong to God. And your childish behavior does not change the fact that you belong to God, that you are God's field, that God is planting in you seeds for eternity 
and he's going to keep with you until those seeds come to fruition. You are God's. You're acting like children. You're fighting like children, but you are God's. And to go back to the beginning, to go back to the gospel, some of you are in active conflict with God, but he has made the first move. He has come to you and said, not only do I forgive you, but I have paid the price for all of your mistakes, for all of your mess, and I'm committed to cleaning up. Will you come to me? Will you come to me? And so to wrap up here, we're going to take a minute just to kind of soak all this in. And as one way to respond, if you would grab your Connect card, the worship team is coming up. If you haven't filled it out, it's a great time to fill it out. But on the back, if you look, you'll notice there's some lines on the bottom of that Connect card. It says, prayer, God stories, or takeaways, something like that. What I want you to do is, as I was talking about conflict resolution, there was probably somebody in your mind. And I'm not going to ask you to write down their name, because they might be sitting next to you. (laughs) But if you would like to make a commitment this week to take a step toward reconciliation, going to the person in love and humility to make this right, I just ask that you write down a letter. Maybe it's the letter of their first name. Maybe it's the second letter of their first name. A letter, and that letter is going to represent a person that you're going to take a step toward to reconcile. And we'll collect those here in just a second. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.